It's not unusual for the business side of the music business to include trips to the courtroom. Usually these are for copyright infringement, someone else ripping off your shtick. In the halcyon days of 2005, the band Slipknot was moved to sue, of all people, Burger King, for their commercial with a fake band, all in scary masks and costumes, called Cock Rock. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The best way to describe the 1980s would be to say, you had to be there. You kind of had to see it to believe it. They were weird times. If we weren't panicking about Russia, we were moral panicking about satanic things like heavy metal music and Dungeons and Dragons, the things that make life worth living and were supposedly at the core of wildly rampant teen suicide and child sex abuse. Today we're focusing on heavy metal, though I do hope to eventually do more on the Dungeons and Dragons moral panic. In the red corner, the busybody buzzkill, Tipper Gore, then-wife of then-Congressman Al Gore, who had it in her head that rock music was a huge threat to the bedrock of society. Feel free to picture Helen Lovejoy from The Simpsons. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? And in the blue corner, an unlikely hero in the form of D. Snyder, frontman of oh-so-typical larger-than-life 80s hair metal band Twisted Sister. The trouble started when Tipper bought her 11-year-old daughter a copy of the album Purple Rain, the smash-hit album that was effectively the soundtrack to the R-rated film of the same name, both courtesy of Prince. And Tipper was shocked, shocked to hear inappropriate lyrics. She clearly did not know Prince's body of work. Darling Nikki was a bridge too far, and if you know, you know. With bra cups brimming with righteous indignation, Tipper gathered like-minded, and I'm assuming equally bored, wives of senators, cabinet members, and prominent D.C. businessmen to form the Parents' Music Resource Council, or PMRC. But this wasn't censorship. The PMRC wanted everyone to know. It was just about helping parents make informed decisions. They wanted to see music rated like movies, with warnings for the R-rated stuff. Critics pointed out that this would be easier said than done. The Motion Picture Association of America rated about 350 movies a year at that time. By contrast, the Recording Industry Association of America saw 25,000 songs released the previous year alone. To focus their efforts, the PMRC threw down the gauntlet on their Filthy 15, a list of songs from the likes of Madonna and Sheena Easton to ACDC and Judas Priest that were part of what Tipper called the twisted tyranny of explicitness in the public domain. I actually did a Thundercats burlesque routine to one of the songs on that list. If you think you can guess which one, hit me up on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie LaBouche. While the PMRC wasn't an official government anything, the record industry needed to stay on their good side. They were lobbying for a tax on blank cassettes, absolutely beside themselves over the idea of losing money to tape dubbing. 
four members of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation that would be deciding on that tax were married to members of the PMRC. This was enough to make the RIAA pretend it didn't know the principles of free expression in hopes of raising the price on blank tapes. When the Senate committee called for hearings on the issue, arguing totally not censorship, you guys, were PMRC members, child health experts, and religious figures. Standing up for their rights as artists were an interesting trio. Twisted Sisters Dee Snyder, folk singer John Denver, and I would not insult him by trying to affix a label other than gonzo rock god Frank Zappa. We don't really know how many other musicians were invited, but these were the ones that showed up. Anyone else who had been invited, including Motley Crue's Vince Neil, who had been the first choice before Dee Snyder, missed the chance at a lot of press. The hearing room was packed with reporters and TV cameras till the fourth estate were jammed in like sardines. PMRC husband Senator Hollings played their hand right away, referring to the music in question as porn rock, saying, if I could find some way to constitutionally do away with it, I would. Yeah, I bet he's fun at parties. Senator Paula Hawkins waved off concerns about artists' rights of free expression under the First Amendment, as she also waved away the idea of parental responsibility and bemoaned rock music becoming so much more explicit in the 30 years since Elvis. A 2012 study by Elizabeth Langdon at Cleveland State University found that music has indeed grown more explicit in its sexual content, but the sexual attitudes and behaviors and related outcomes of adolescence do not appear to be following suit at the national level. When it came time to make their case before the government, Tipper Gore and Susan Baker, wife of then Treasury Secretary James Baker, testified on behalf of the PMRC. Even the album art, a much bigger part of the whole music buying and enjoying process at the time, was put on trial. Oh, you remember when you get liner notes with the full lyrics of the album? It was like Christmas. Those albums that had Playboy, Boris Vallejo, or Saw vibes on their jacket were used as evidence. A local D.C. pastor read salacious lyrics about bondage, incest, and, I kid you not, anal vapors to unrestrained tittering and laughter. A child psychiatrist testified that David Berkowitz, the serial killer called Son of Sam, was known to listen to Black Sabbath. Sigh. You shouldn't be allowed to get a degree in anything without understanding the difference between correlation and causation. Berkowitz probably wore sneakers and ate bread, but did those things cause him to become a serial killer? Then the defense took the stand. Frank Zappa was first up, looking as not Frank Zappa as you've ever seen him, with short hair and a crisp suit. I've heard some conflicting reports on whether or not people on this committee want legislation. I understand that Senator Holling does. Senator James Exon butted in, saying he might support legislation that makes the music industry voluntarily clean up its act, which Zappa astutely pointed out is hardly voluntary. The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver 
any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years, dealing with the interpretation and enforcement problems inherent in the proposal's design. It is my understanding that, in law, First Amendment issues are decided with a preference for the least restrictive alternative. In this context, the PMRC's demands are the equivalent of treating dandruff by decapitation. He took dead aim at the inherent conflict of interests and said the whole issue was a facade for trade-restraining legislation whipped up like an instant pudding by the wives of Big Brother. Ugh, mwah, so good. The senators were less impressed with Zappa than I am. Thankfully, the next at-bat was ivory soap squeaky clean, openly devout Christian John Denver, or as Dee Snyder later described him, Mom Apple Pie John Denver Christmas Special Fresh Scrubbed Guy. Despite his broad appeal, Denver was no stranger to censorship, which he warned the PMRC was approaching. One of his biggest hits, Rocky Mountain High, was banned from some radio stations for drug references that weren't there at all. What assurance have I that any national panel to review my music would make any better judgment? Denver asked the senators. A self-appointed moral watchdog, he argued, was antithetical to the ideals of a democratic society, the sort of thing you saw in Nazi Germany. Denver then excused himself from the hearing early because he had a meeting with NASA in hopes of becoming the first civilian in space. Not a word of a lie, I had no idea until like two days ago. Luckily for Denver, he didn't make the cut. The flight in question was the catastrophic last launch of the Challenger. With the opening acts out of the way, it was time for the headliner, D. Snyder, who quite plausibly believed the PMRC, or the senators whose wives were in the PMRC, invited me to make a mockery out of me in front of the world. When Snyder walked in, they probably thought they'd gotten their wish. He was wearing his dirtbag couture, jeans, a sleeveless t-shirt, sunglasses, and voluminous bottle blonde hair. But Dee Snyder wasn't the airhead they were expecting. He introduced himself as a married father, a Christian who neither drinks nor does drugs. He brought his army and NYPD veteran dad with him. Frank Zappa had also brought along two of his kids, Moon Unit and Dweezil, because they were big Twisted Sister fans. Snyder addressed Tipper directly and personally for her misinterpretation and misrepresentation of his song Under the Blade, which they claimed was about violent S&M and rape, citing the lyrics, Your hands are tied, your legs are strapped, a light shines in your eyes, you faintly see a razor's edge, you open your mouth to cry. Snyder countered it was actually about their bassist, Eddie Ojeda, needing surgery, literally going under the knife. Ms. Gore was looking for sadomasochism and bondage, and she found it. Snyder would later tell the Huffington Post that he enjoyed, quote, the raw hatred I saw in Al Gore's eyes when I said Tipper Gore had a dirty mind. Snyder highlighted another accusation from Tipper Gore, 
You look at even the t-shirts the kids wear and you see Twisted Sister and a woman in handcuffs sort of spread-eagled. This was a complete untruth and Snyder was not having it. Twisted Sister, quote, never sold a shirt of this type. We have always taken great pains to steer clear of sexism in our merchandise, records, stage show, and personal lives. Furthermore, we have always promoted the belief that rock and roll should not be sexist, but should cater to males and females equally. He challenged Tipper to produce any such shirt. And when the topic came round a second time, Senator Al Gore clarified that the word T-shirts was in plural, so one of them referred to Twisted Sister and another referred to a woman in handcuffs. Snyder stuck to his guns, but Senator Gore changed the subject. During Snyder's testimony, Senator Ernest Hollings from South Carolina, him again, asked him about different perceptions of obscenity and vulgarity. He read part of a Supreme Court verdict in the Pacifica case in which the Supreme Court ruled that patently offensive indecent material presented over the airwaves confronts the citizen not only in public, but also in the privacy of the home. The individual's right to be left alone plainly outweighs the First Amendment rights of an intruder. Snyder pointed out that there was a difference between the airwaves as opposed to a person going out with their money, purchasing an album to play in their room, in their home, on their own time. The airwaves are something different. They still hadn't figured out who they were dealing with, had they? Senator Gore opened his questioning of Snyder by asking, what the initials of their fan club, SMF, stood for. It stands for the Sick Mother F***ers Friends of Twisted Sister, Snyder testified. Is this also a Christian group? Gore asked to a smattering of laughter. I don't believe profanity has anything to do with Christianity. Snyder had an astute and adroit answer for everything. I could watch that hearing all day. The beauty of literature, poetry, and music, Snyder said, is that they leave room for the audience to put its own imagination, experience, and dreams into the words. There is no authority who has the right or the necessary insight to make these judgments. Not myself, not the federal government, not some recording industry committee, not the PTA, not the RIAA, and certainly not the PMRC. When all was said and done, it's unlikely that many minds were changed by the hearing. Although, despite the protestations to the contrary, quite a few senators and witnesses had expressly argued in favor of government action, aka actual censorship. While no laws ended up being passed because of the hearing, they still got the result they wanted. The RIAA agreed to work with the PMRC on labeling objectionable content with a big, bold, black-and-white sticker reading Parental Advisory Explicit Lyrics. So the rockers kinda lost, but they were awesome, so I'm counting that as a moral victory. That black-and-white sticker was worse than a scarlet A. Huge retailers like Walmart wouldn't sell labeled records, period, cutting out a huge slice of the marketplace for these artists. Some smaller stores were threatened with eviction by their landlords if they stocked the records. The city of San Antonio barred labeled artists from performing. Maryland and Pennsylvania lawmakers 
debated requiring retailers to keep labeled albums in an adults-only section of the store. Dead Kennedy singer Jello Biafra was prosecuted in California for distribution of harmful material to minors. But the musicians would have the last laugh. Those warning labels very quickly went from mark of shame to selling point. Retailers realized the amount of money they were missing out on and started stocking the albums. Teens and young adults would often buy the albums because they had the warning. In fact, if you were hardcore or counterculture or punk in any way, but you didn't have one of those warning labels? Scoff. Scoff, I say. There was also a shedload of reaction music, including Danzig's only mainstream hit. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your children not to hear my words, what they mean, what they say. Yes, I also just learned what that song was actually about. But you know who else is a winner in my book? The folks that take the time out of their day to leave reviews for the podcast or the book. Like Debs Wilmet, who left a Apple Podcast review, five stars, ASMR plus wit and knowledge. Just the right balance of interesting facts and humor, delivered with dulcet tones. Highly recommended. Thank you for that, Debs. Short and sweet, to the point, and I applaud you for it. On the book side of things, over on Goodreads, which I guess I forgot to check for several months on end, Sajil, apologies for mispronunciation, left four stars, saying, This is the book version of one of my favorite factoid podcasts. The author has a very ASMR-soothing voice. But sometimes I don't catch all of the trivial details when I'm listening in the car. So this was fun to read on my iPad, where I could instantly go down the internet rabbit hole when one of her factoids piqued my curiosity for even more detail into the unbelievable but true stories. A minus. I won't dicker over uh, A minus versus A plus, and I thank you for coming down rabbit holes with me. And of course, I always appreciate the folks who support the show over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. New members like Paul D. and Pigeon. They get bonus content, exclusive swag, and early ad-free versions of the episode. So if you don't want to hear the ads that are about to play, patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Or if you want to throw a coin to your Witcher on a one-time basis, I'm also on Coffee or Ko-Fi. I still don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced. ko-fi.com slash yourbrainonfacts. And don't forget, you can still go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch to buy the Russian warship Go F Yourself t-shirt raising money for the people of Ukraine. And now a word from our sponsors. Edgewater Hospital was once Chicago's finest until a new owner took over in the 1990s. There were some serious fraudulent things going on. There are some people there putting in the hospital that aren't sick that have never been sick. They were preying upon elderly, frail, poor people. The insurance fraud scheme turned the hospital into a butcher shop. People had these incredibly complicated invasive procedures done to them inside. It's tragic what happened. The complete series of If the Walls Could Talk is now available. Content warning. 
The following section is about news events subsequent to suicide, without going into too much detail about the suicides themselves. If that's not where your head is today, no worries. We'll catch up next week. In 1986, Sharon Osbourne called her management client and husband Ozzy Osbourne, telling him he had to get on a plane to L.A. as fast as possible. Like a phone call from a movie, she refused to explain why, but demanded he leave right now. Ozzy landed in L.A. into the loving embrace of a battalion of reporters' microphones and those stupidly bright news camera lights, asking him how he responded to the suicide. What Sharon could have taken 10 seconds to explain to him was that the year prior, 19-year-old John McCollum was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his California bedroom. The album Blizzard of Oz, which he'd allegedly been listening to for six straight hours, was still spinning on the stereo turntable. McCollum's parents believed that Osborne was responsible, that his song Suicide Solution was a proximate cause of their son's death. Okay, that was about 20 seconds, but I stand on my statement she could have given him some warning. In their lawsuit, McCullum's parents claimed that there were hidden lyrics in the song that incited John to kill himself, with messages like, Get the gun and try it. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Osborne countered, The song wasn't about a solution as in an answer, but a solution as in a liquid. Specifically the one that he was at the time slowly killing himself with, and which had recently killed ACDC's Bon Scott, alcohol. Suicide Solution wasn't written about, oh, that's the solution, suicide. I was a heavy drinker, and I was drinking myself to an early grave. It was a suicide solution, Ozzy said later. Wine is fine, but whiskey's quicker. Suicide is slow with liquor. That's what I was doing for a long time. The plaintiff's case was that the song Suicide Solution should be exempt from the protections of the First Amendment's freedom of speech. In the U.S., you're free to express any viewpoint or feelings, no matter how terrible, up to a point. It is not legal to directly incite specific, imminent action which is likely to cause harm to others. That's hard to prove and virtually every attempt to hold an entertainer responsible for allegedly inciting action has failed. One notable exception, and a suitable replacement for the tired old you-can't-yell-fire-in-a-crowded-theater example, is that of radio disc jockey The Real Don Steele, who told listeners to hurry as fast as they could to a mystery address in Los Angeles in order to win a prize. This was 1970, only two years after seatbelts in cars were made mandatory, and people got in crack-ups. One motorist, who had no idea a contest was going on, was hit and killed. In a case still taught in law schools everywhere, his family sued, and the California Supreme Court ruled in their favor. I could do a whole episode just on radio promotions going terribly, terribly wrong. Let me know if that's something that you'd be interested in hearing. At issue in the McCullum case was not whether there were actually hidden lyrics, but whether those lyrics were protected speech or incitement to violence. If successful, the McCullum lawsuit 
would have had sweeping consequences for artists in every medium, potentially holding them liable for the actions of those who watched, read, or listened to what they had created. At the very least, it would have made Ozzy too big a liability for any record label or concert promoter to associate themselves with. And it's not hard to imagine that that pariah status would spread all across the heavy metal genre. Osborne said in an interview, I feel very sad for the boy and I feel terribly sad for the parents. As a parent myself, I'd be pretty devastated if something like that happened. And I've thought about this. If the boot was on the other foot, I couldn't blame the artist. The lawsuit wasn't just about suicide solution. They also blamed the song Paranoid. Data point of one, which isn't good science, but I can disprove that one by sheer force of math. It's probably my most listened to Ozzy or Sabbath song, with the very unsabbath Laguna Sunrise as a close second. Plaintiff's counsel Tom Anderson claimed that John McCollum had been a normal, happy, well-adjusted young man who listened to Suicide Solution for hours before killing himself, and that a low-frequency hum on the record, only audible if you were using headphones as McCollum had been, caused him to be more susceptible to the song's hidden message. Attorneys for CBS, Ozzy's record label and party in the suit, I mean, party to the lawsuit, not like a party in a suit, argued that Osborne was no more responsible for his listeners' actions than Shakespeare would be for Hamlet's soliloquy, Tolstoy for Anna Karenina throwing herself in front of a train, or the producers of M.A.S.H. for choosing Suicide is Painless for the theme tune. When Judge John Cole dismissed the case, spoiler alert, he left room for the plaintiffs to appeal over the mysterious hum, which they did. The appellate judge upheld the dismissal. This wasn't the last time a fan suicide resulted in legal action. The family of another young man brought a similar lawsuit against Osborne in 1986. Their case was also unsuccessful. Five years later, CBS was back in court, though this time it was Judas Priest who found themselves in the dock, but with a pseudoscience twist. In December 1985, 20-year-old James Vance and 18-year-old Raymond Belknap of Nevada concluded a day of drinking, drugs, and heavy metal with an apparent suicide pact by means of self-inflicted gunshot fire. Belknap died instantly, while Vance survived a further three years without the lower half of his face before eventually succumbing to complications. The two families alleged that Judas Priest had placed subliminal messages throughout 1978's Stained Class album, directing and even commanding listeners to kill themselves. The worst offender on the album was Better By You, Better Than Me, where messages like Let's Be Dead and Do It were smuggled in by means of backmasking. Let's hop out of the kiddie pool and go for a deep dive here. Backwards masking or backmasking is an intentional recording in which a message is recorded backwards onto a track that's meant to be played forward. It goes all the way back to the 70s, the 1870s, when Thomas Edison discovered the novelty of playing recorded music backwards. 
the beat generation of the 50s started to purposely include reverse audio into their music in an avant-garde, expressionism, experimental kind of way. And artists continued to play around with it for decades. The Beatles even played around with it, which splashed fuel on the Paul-is-dead urban legend-come-conspiracy theory with supposed messages like, Paul is dead, miss him, miss him, in I'm So Tired, and Turn Me On, Dead Man, in Revolution 9. Backmasking was the sort of thing that die-hard audiophiles kept an ear out for, but wasn't in wide public knowledge until the 1980s. These days, Easter eggs and hidden goodies are shared on social media and YouTube, but back then, it was conservatives ruining cassettes and vinyl records by playing them backwards in church, community meetings, local access television, whatever venue they could get. They claimed this backwards speech could subliminally influence the listener when listening to the music in the normal way. They found backmasking in everything from Elvis Presley to Led Zeppelin. Supposedly, Stairway to Heaven contained satanic commands like, Here's to my sweet Satan, serve me, and there's no escaping it. Professional audio engineer Evan Alcott claims that backmasking or Finding phonetic reversals is purely coincidental, in which the spoken or sung phonemes, a fancy word for individual speech sounds, seems to form words. Our brains make sense of our environment, or they try to, any road. But that can mean convincing themselves that garbled noise is actually words. There's a key to claims of backmasking, and that's priming telling the listener what they're going to hear before you play the sample. Listen to this clip from Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. Apologies for the audio quality, this is someone's YouTube video of a vinyl record. And see if you can make out any words. Okay, now I'm going to play it again, but this time I'm going to tell you that it has a hidden message. Decide to smoke marijuana. Did you hear it the second time? Yeah, humans are very easy to influence and lead. Backmasking is supposed to work subliminally meaning literally below the threshold of sensation or consciousness, something that you're not aware you've experienced. In theory, subliminal messages deliver an idea that the conscious mind doesn't detect. For those too young to remember Tyler Durden's projectionist hobby, the prime example of subliminal messaging is a single frame of text slipped into a video, which has been used on television by both corporations and, no surprise, political candidates. Whenever one of these comes to light, there is always much contention and gnashing of teeth, yet thoroughly negligible results. If you can find a properly organized scientific study that bears out claims that messages you don't know you saw can influence your behavior, call me here at the studio. 
Until then, I plant my banner on the hill of It's Utter Crap. At the time, Judas Priest guitarist Glenn Tipton said, It's a fact that if you play speech backwards, some of it will seem to make sense. So I asked permission to go into a studio and find some perfectly innocent phonetic flukes. The lawyers didn't want to do it, but I insisted. We bought a copy of the Stained Class album in a local record shop, went into the studio, recorded it to tape, turned it over, and played it backwards. Right away, we found Hey Ma, My Chair's Broken and Give Me a Peppermint and Help Me Keep a Job. At one point, frontman Rob Halford was called upon to actually sing part of the song while on the stand, which he looked really uncomfortable doing without so much as a metronome to accompany him. It tore us up emotionally, he said, hearing someone say to a judge and the cameras that this is a band that creates music that kills young people. We accept that some people don't like heavy metal, but we can't let them convince us that it's negative and destructive. Heavy metal is a friend that gives people great pleasure and enjoyment and helps them through hard times. Eventually, the case against Judas Priest and their label was dismissed. The judge did agree that you could hear words other than the printed lyrics, but that they were only discernible after their location had been identified and after the sounds were isolated and amplified. The sounds would not be consciously discernible to the ordinary listener under normal listening conditions. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Slipknot filed a copyright infringement lawsuit claiming Burger King misappropriated their images. The King fired back that Slipknot hadn't invented the masked rocker, the post-apocalyptic gas mask aesthetic, or white guys wearing dreadlocks, and therefore had no copyright to claim. Ultimately, I guess both sides realized they had more important things to look after, and the case was dropped. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. This podcast is part of the Airwaves Media Network, alongside such great shows as Good Job Brain, the Unbiased Science Podcast, and you've heard me mention him before, The Constant. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.